was a dream. We lived inside a dream. February 1989. What year is this? Linda, it's 5.34 p.m. Hello, and welcome to the finale episode of Twin Peaks Peaks. My name's Ashley Brandt. My name's Matt Olson. We're talking about parts 17 and 18 of The Return. And at the top of this episode, you may be wondering you know, why we didn't hit our regular release date. You may be wondering, you may have already heard a little bit in our voices, a little... A little different tone, let's say. Uh, so Ashley and I will get our gut reactions to the finale out of the way at the top here. We did not like it. <laughs> no. Okay, this is the only episode that we've watched together yeah, in The Return. Which was, <laughs> which was maybe, you know, maybe we waited too long to do that. Um, yep. We might have had a little more fun just, you know, with any old episode in the middle of the run. But we did watch together and our reaction to it was negative, was bad. We did not feel good at all coming out of it. I'll, I'll say this. I, I just zeroed in like 20 minutes ago on what the feeling was like. It was kind of like when you walk out of a test that you know that you bombed. That's how it felt to me. I think that's accurate. I felt like physical pain. I felt like I'd been punched in the gut. I felt <laughs> it felt very bad. It felt like felt like coming out of a, a haze. It felt like coming down from some fun drugs and then having a really bad time. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's get this out of the way at the top of the episode. Um, let's do a quick check in with our feelings vis-a-vis the lost finale. And when we saw that. Okay. I remember being like somewhat misty eyed at the end of the last finale and feeling like at that point I had already accepted what things they were definitely not going to tie up because the list there was so goddamn long and I don't think I had accepted what was what ended up not being tied up by this episode or even, you know, alluded to by these by these two parts, I guess. Um and that was a yeah it was a different reaction it did not feel good even though thinking about it the twin peaks finale might be more fitting than the lost finale was but we have to always talk about lost yeah i mean that's that's the quintessential bad tv finale right i mean there are there are others obviously like i know people hate the roseanne finale which i haven't seen um I feel like we should I should mention that like we watched another finale together, which was the Breaking Bad finale, which was like gold standard TV finale. The reactions immediately were really positive unless you were one of those people who didn't really understand what the show was doing or going for. And you thought the big ending was going to be Walter White riding off into the sunset. But I don't have time to go through that. But I think that there is a spectrum of. TV finales that I think we have lost on one end where there's this like 
satisfaction that just doesn't hold up thematically like that moment where you're like they're all together again and then you like think back on it and you're like that was really bad actually like once those feelings of fondness fade away Mm, and then i don't know let me finish (laughs) and then at the other end i think that there's the Mad Men finale where all your characters not all of your characters all of your favorite characters basically just eat shit and have their arcs ruined um but like it's thematically sound and so it gets some positive buzz because of that and i think in the middle we have breaking bad which has a lot of satisfaction on both a character level and an overarching thematic level yeah i i would say i mean the, the one point i would say is a valid criticism for the the breaking bad finale lead up and and really like when I think about like how Breaking Bad ends as a show and how it works is that the last chunk of the show, you know, that last run of episodes does a lot of work under tight circumstances to um, to to bring it to that ending that feels even remotely satisfactory. Not the least of which is the ultimate gambit of Walter White is so bad. The only people you can pair him against and still have you somewhat be on his side is neo-Nazis. Mm-hmm. Um, which is like, I mean, they're, they're like a almost last minute addition to the Breaking Bad universe for the sake of giving you a bad guy set you can root against. Like by, by all three of those Mad Men lost Breaking Bad, this Twin Peaks finale, I don't like I, if for your spectrum that you've set up, I don't know where the fuck it fits thematically, satisfactorily. Because it compresses a lot of things into the last two hours that, if not outright like new inventions, have been existing on the fringes of like Twin Peaks analysis and theory for a while and completely recontextualizes things and just throws caution to the wind in a way that, like we said, watching it live felt really fucking jarring and bad to us. Um, whereas like Breaking Bad, you know. That was like a fist pump moment. But Breaking Bad was knowing that it was TV. It was TV made by TV people making the best possible TV. And Twin Peaks, whether or not you want to call it an 18-hour movie, and I think that that's, personally right now as it stands, I think that that's garbage, and I will get into why, because it relates to some of my disappointment with the finale. But um, Mm -hmm. Twin Peaks is still TV made by a movie person. And so the Mm -hmm. finale... I don't know if it would have ever fit nicely in any of those boxes on the spectrum, but where do you think it falls? If you had to put it in line with those three shows, the first hour part 17 is very lost physically. Mm. Everyone's together. There's some sense of closure. I don't care for its execution particularly, which we can get into. Um, The last hour feels very, This is going to be a weird comparison, but I'm going to stand by it. It feels like the Mad Men finale for the the same reasons that I was frustrated with the Mad Men finale. Obviously, they're working with like very different parameters, but I think that ultimately the things that disappoint me in part 18 feel very akin to the disappointment I felt watching the Mad Men finale and knowing it was good in some ways and that it was going to be receiving good reviews and there was this technically good execution 
that ultimately failed some of the series' most important characters and most important plot lines. Almost this like sudden revelation that like what you thought you understood and appreciated about the show, the show doesn't understand or appreciate about itself. Mm. Yeah, and I could definitely see some parallels there. But that's interesting. You're saying that 17 and 18 taken together as a finale existed at the opposite ends. Yeah. And so for a dumbass like me who majored in economics, my first impulse was like, well, take the average, then it's perfect. But like I no. just said, it doesn't fit in the box. It doesn't No, work and that I think way. a lot of the initial reactions and a lot of the reactions that I think are a little more sophisticated in the way they tried to deal with the finale do bifurcate the two. And I think a lot of people are saying like 17 is the end of the series as we know it. And 18 is like the opening of a new door. And like, yeah. it's pretty established at this point that Showtime has said there is no talk of a season four. You know, they said they'd be open to doing more with David, but there's no real indication that there's much else in the works. I'll get into this later. And I think Mark Frost himself retweeted something that was like, I see 17 is the end and 18 is the beginning of something new. But like, let me tell you, it does not feel that way to me. And I think that that's a garbage way to <laughs> the people who are saying that are frustrated. And what they're trying to do is to not express that they're frustrated. And the last thing I wanted us to do on our show and I think part of why we waited so long is that I want to express that frustration in a productive way rather than just say like, this sucks or pave over it by saying like, well, it was really different and that's exciting if we assume there's more coming or something like a qualification like that. I right. don't in a million years believe that there's more coming outside of Mark's book and I don't expect that will make anything clearer in a way that matters for an ending as like it or don't cinematic as this is. I don't think tie in books. I don't think fan mm -hmm. theories or <laughs> particular ways of watching the finale, which we'll get into, I think towards the end um, of this episode, I don't think that changes it. This is, this is like the end of twin peaks as we know it in many ways, I guess mm -hmm. uh, uh, be cheeky, but you got to take it as such and not think like, Oh, there's going to be more. Thus I'm excited by the finale. Like, no, it's a it's a yeah. finale. Yeah. Let's let's start at the beginning with uh, the FBI in Buckhorn. One last great establishing shot of Buckhorn, South Dakota, actually Butte, Montana. And we start part 17 with a stupid dick joke from Gordon Cole, which is maybe maybe a sign of things to come. Was that a highlight for you? No, I, I actually when I keep in mind, this is like the first five minutes of the episode. And yeah. seeing that, I was just like, oh, no. I mean, anything Gordon says in, in the hands of someone doing analysis of the show is going to be read in the metatextual sense of like David Lynch. So so David's character saying like, I'm still hard where it counts, buddy. And stupid shit like that is like almost like presaging like this finale is not going to tie up loose ends and it's going to blow your mind and it's going to do David Lynch things. And mm -hmm. in that sense, it's stupid, but also just as a joke about this horny old character Gordon Cole who's previously frustrated us this season um, in that regard also kind of lame so it's my thought on it I'm really just not holding back right now also right after they toast here's to the bureau and it's like, like you just found out that Diane was 
a tulpa and shot her. Yeah. Like now it's time yeah. for Bordeaux. Like Yeah. Well, they do finally figure out who Dougie Jones is. And it seems like all that needed to happen was Tammy needed to do some Googling. I don't know what the fuck she's looking at, but she suddenly has all of the information that they need. Which just again puts a fine point on the like, why is Tammy written this way point? You know? Yeah, I think these are like Tammy's last lines are just like recapping what we've seen happen to Dougie. And that's um that's frustrating. I, I think I think a lot of the negative reaction to Tammy is completely unjustified. I think, you know, I think Christabel's cool. I wish that there had been more for her ultimately, and that's not an uncommon criticism I have for a lot of the female characters in the return. Um the the fucking thing here and where I'll first defer to like a Reddit <laughs> r slash Twin Peaks observation after the finale is Gordon's revelation that he's been hiding something from Albert. And it's this 11th hour revelation that Cooper and Major Briggs had been at some point. It's very unclear as to whether or not this is immediately after the events of season two or during and we don't see but they communicate to Gordon Cole that they were on to this thing known as Jow Day, which has become Judy. And someone immediately was like, all right, let's plug Jow Day into Google. And one of the first things you find is a translation to Chinese that says Jow Day means to explain. And to have something that translates to to explain marked as like this extreme negative force in a David Lynch work. I don't know if I like that move or not. I don't know if I like the idea of in a David Lynch thing, literally saying like this thing, this compulsion to explain things is a a negative force. I mean, here's a question that I don't have the answer to. If a couple of our specific gripes were addressed, and I think our gripes are with Laura and Diane, I think like those are our main criticisms here. Would we feel differently about the ways in which the finale confounds us and subverts our expectations as a viewer? I think that's a question we got to grapple with at the end of talking about all this, because I I need to talk with you through this finale. Like we you and I recording this episode need to have our conversation before I can even remotely think. Okay. Whether any differences would make a difference to me, right? Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's just like I I just wonder from a listener perspective, like a listener to our podcast perspective, have we suddenly done this like unintelligible 180 of going from like justifying everything David does to like suddenly like shitting on things we they might have expected us right? to like. And if you think and if you think we have, tweet at us at Twin Peaks Peaks on Twitter. Um Here's what I'll say, and this and this is in reference to the to explain this Jow Day thing and and the the meta nonsense of it is like, like I've said in part sixteen, I don't think that what I would have wanted out of the finale was something that actually tied up all these loose ends, and I still hold firm to that. And I and I pulled a Mark Frost quote that I want to get to at towards the end here that I think resonates more for me now having seen it all but that shows that he's of a similar mind where it's just like you don't you don't wrap everything up that's kind of what killed season two uh midway through it's it doesn't fit the good parts of twin peaks that's not what i'm frustrated about i'm not frustrated that it didn't explain things in fact what i'd say what frustrates me most about part 17 and 18 are execution which i think we will 
get into and we will sound even more negative than we sound now. Am I do you think that that's accurate? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're not this isn't a two hour long gab fest about like, oh, man, they left all these things unresolved and that sucks. There is some of that. The, the frustration doesn't diminish how much I liked parts one through 16. And I also don't think that like a Reddit theory or like somebody, you know, thinking through with the most like forgiving mind and like critical like tools, you know, at their disposal to read the finale in a particular way is going to change my grievances either. Like mm-hmm. the finale is as it feels like right now, not for me. And that's just the way it is. I don't want anyone listening right now, I think, as you alluded to, to think that we suddenly flipped and hate all of Twin Peaks now. I'm just not, I'm not happy with the finale, but I don't, if we had asked the night that we saw it, I would have said I hated it. I don't hate it now because I I don't have the energy to, I don't know. <laughs> it's not worth my, it's not worth my bile. Yeah, I mean, I just, I guess like, I feel like there are moments where I've had reservations about the series and like I I can't pinpoint any of them. I just know I've had this feeling before that I had a reservation that I dismissed because I don't know, because I had faith in the project or in David as a filmmaker or in where things were going. I don't know what. And so I do wonder from my perspective if I could go back and change my mind on things that I forgave for one reason or another, but maybe that's beside the point. Yeah. And I think that might change over time, but already having only seen the parts 17 and 18 once more, and it was, it wasn't as painful. It wasn't as upsetting. So it might sound to some listeners like it's the part 17 and 18 hate fest. And if so, um, you know, sorry, (laughs) but we got to be honest about this. Yeah. So FBI, they go through the Jiao Day thing and, and the Dougie Jones thing. There are a couple lines that are important. Um, Gordon says that Cooper said to him, if I disappear like the others, um, do everything you can to find me. I'm trying to kill two birds with one stone, which implies mm-hmm. this is a conversation that happened 25 years ago. And mm-hmm. the two birds, one stone is a clear reference back to the opening of the return. Um, also, I will say there was a briefly touching character moment, which was when Albert forgives Gordon for having withheld this and says he understands. And Gordon does say, I know you understand, Albert, but I'm still sorry. It's like the one the one moment where Gordon actually apologizes for yanking Albert by his fucking chain yeah. at all. Um, and also Gordon Cypher for David Lynch says, I have no idea if this plan is unfolding properly. So last point, 253 in Las Vegas, and that adds up to a 10, the number of completion. That's in Cooper's note that he leaves Bushnell. And this sudden writing into the show of some actual numerology bullshit, which is something that fans have been obsessing over for forever. Just look back at the flashing airplane windows in part seven. Um now people have a reason to to read into that and i have one thing i'll say later that i do actually like want to point out regarding number bullshit but yeah i mean that's certainly not the first time we've been presented with a number that is supposed to be important for one reason or another yeah can we can we mention though 
to talk about Lost one last time. Every time they showed coordinates and they started with four eight, did you just like did something just like bubble up inside of you being like, are they going to go there? No, I fully blocked out the number from Lost. <laughs> what, can you try to remember what the number from no, Lost is? No, no, really, I not can't. at all. Okay, no. <laughs> Let's talk about a character who gets some resolution in a way off screen. Jerry, of all people, <laughs> of all people, Jerry Horn. Which you know what I will say, point in part seventeen's favor. I was not left wondering what happened to Jerry. Jerry is in Jackson Hole. He walked all the way to Wyoming and he's naked and Ben is going to send some clothes. So we got that. We know uh, Ben hasn't been. I I don't know what would have happened to Ben. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe he's fucking Beverly. We don't know that for sure at this point. Yeah. Who knows if he needs to be concerned about Audrey at all because maybe she's still in a coma. Yeah, we'll get we'll get into the these hanging threads, but I just wanted to say in the order of events, we do check in. Jerry thought his binoculars killed someone, which I thought was I don't know, that was a it was a nice layer on top of that. Um but then Mr. C enters what I'm going to call just confidently at this point the White Lodge. I don't really care if there's another alternative Oh, in my notes, there. I wrote the steampunk room <laughs> within the White Lodge. Yes, the yeah, we see that weird steampunk movie screen implement from Part Eight again. Um, and this sequence, in terms of like effects driven, and I'm doing that with massive air quotes. Like this thing, it feels to me as though this wasn't like the visual effects people working at all. It feels like something that David like labored over. Um, in the editing bay with like a copy of After Effects um, to put mm-hmm. Mr. C in that weird little cage and then show the fireman and Major Briggs sort of shuttle Mr. C off to his next destination, which looked like initially it could have been uh, the Palmer house. But we see the fireman almost do like an iPad, iPhone like swipe. And the screen moves and it moves from the Palmer house to the sheriff's department and they eject Mr. C there. Mm-hmm. Um, my thought is that the whole coordinates thing was building to Mr. C thought by going to the White Lodge, he would be able to extract the exact location of the experiment, the thing on his little card that he's been looking for this whole time. Uh, and then be instantly deposited there. But it seems to me, my reading of this scene is that um, Briggs and the firemen anticipated this move and set up the events at the sheriff's station such as to thwart that plan. Um, I mean, I, I guess we just don't know like what Mr. C knows at this point. I think like it's pretty clear that he is probably looking for Sarah. Mm-hmm. Um, I just don't know... I mean, it, it doesn't it doesn't matter. Was his final destination the White Lodge? Was his final destination the Palmer House? Was his final destination just wherever Sarah was? I don't know. But the point is, he ends up at the sheriff's station. And one question I do have is, even though he seems to be in the wrong place, why does he continue to go down that route? I I cannot tell you why that might be like why he continues to go along with it. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's some good old fashioned Dale Cooper overconfidence driving Mr. C to think that he can 
thwart whatever plan they have in store for him. Um, the yeah, one- I guess it, it just feels like as I'm like picking this apart, knowing that I did not enjoy watching it, it just feels like Mr. C suddenly goes from this very like driven character with a clear motivation in the sense that we know he wants to go somewhere. We don't necessarily know why. Um, and in his final moments, he feels a little more directionless all of a sudden. I mean, a lot of this feels like contrivances to try and get everybody in the right place at the right time and rush through yes. these events, which is something that's like number one in my execution is that try to justify it by they were trying to make it seem rushed or whatever, but it was rushed feeling and it felt bad as a result. Like to, to bring everybody together and to bring events to a head so quickly uh, especially in a show that has also like been training you to get used to its like languid pacing is is hard and it, I don't think it succeeds in that uh, regard. The one thing I appreciate them taking time in the White Lodge space to dwell on is that shot uh, of the room immediately adjacent to the theater room to the steampunk room, let's call it mm-hmm. where there's just more and more and more like receding off into the distance of those pods, those pods that we've seen throughout, you know, Philip mm-hmm. Jeffries looks like one that's been made into a teapot. Um, there's one in the room as Mr. C is brought in. Um, there's just like a room full of those things. Uh, and it's ominous and eerie. It implies some kind of like, like the addition of that shot is to imply like the white lodge has more electricity and tricks up its sleeve than anybody can fuck with and i I like that bigger bigger than this story okay regarding everyone getting together in those like middle 30 minutes as they just pour in to basically observe freddie punching this black orb with bob's face on it well does that did that feel like Arrested Development season four? Did that feel like <laughs> the final episode when they finally got most of the cast together again? Yeah, a little bit. You know, we get Chad getting clocked by the the gate. Um, like that's my Freddy moment of triumph is like Chad getting his. It's not what comes after. Um, we get that great moment of Andy just rushing through the room going very important, very important. That's great setting up Lucy pulling the gun on Mr. C, which is like maybe of, of this whole like contrived getting Mr. C and Bob out of the way thing. That's maybe my favorite touch is that it's, it kind of echoes when Andy is the one to save uh, Harry Truman at the end of season Mm -hmm. one and shoots Jacques. I liked that payoff. And that's the thing is that it was a payoff that was actually like, it was set up several episodes ago with Andy's future vision given to him by the fireman, and then it paid off in a satisfying way. Turns out it can be nice when you do that, when you set a thing up <laughs> and you now I sound mad. Yeah. Now I sound mad. Um the orb. The orb doesn't just feel like Arrested Development season four. It feels like that plus like the worst video game boss fight you've ever seen. Yes. Um when I said earlier that I liked the White Lodge thing and how it felt like that was David hands on, you know, at the booth, it's because it looks like those little short films that David would produce. This doesn't feel like that. You spend 
many minutes watching this thing play out and it just is so deeply stupid looking and unsatisfying and like it feels disrespectful to frank silva frankly i fully agree i think that's like a moment when we were watching it that we all had to kind of reconcile with and go oh okay this is how they're dealing with the lack of frank silva and i remember when i was watching that i was really thinking about the scene with Frank Silva crawling over the couch in the Palmer house and how spooky that was and how effective it was and how great that scene could have been with Frank Silva. Yeah. In whatever form that was not that. This relates to something that Brendan James brought up, you know, both his appearances on our podcast, which is just like, yeah, it feels like a limitation given that these actors are no longer with us, but, Weirdly, it doesn't like that. I don't I don't buy that for the creative choice made here, the choice to make Bob this orb like that's not a limitation thing, because one to to fast forward a bit, David with, you know, a shot at a distance had no qualms having a body double stand in for for Jack Nance as Pete. The orb reappropriates like reuses uh footage of frank silva and you could have used footage of frank for like close-up terrifying shots you could have reused footage in a way while also having a body double or just something not as stupid as this orb the execution of it is just so fucking rancid and shitty looking i don't know even the even the sound design in that scene is like terrifying if you close your eyes, but if you open them again, he's fighting a fucking beach ball. And also the the POV is weird because the camera like seems to sometimes be or like take Freddie's point of view. So then you as the viewer are face to face with the ball, the orb, and that feels less real or more campy or like you just have to reconcile with how bad those effects are and you can't suspend your moment of disbelief. I don't know. It's just it's not I guess not great. I guess it's not a matter. I should be more specific in terms of the effect of being bad, because I also like like I said, it doesn't feel like something David had hands on work with because it's rendered. Yeah. At way more fidelity than he's ever seemed to like. It seems like it's made by the effects crew that made the amazing looking nuclear bomb detonation. Only like it's a fucking malice orb. Right. Like. Well, it's it's, just, it's a floating it's a floating ball. Why is the ball floating around the room? Why does it have its own like agency and like it volition has in this moment? None of the terror that Frank Silva embodied in his physical performance as Bob. It's completely devoid of any of that. I'll say another thing. Uh, Joel Bacco, who we had on for I believe part fourteen, he had a tweet thread where he was thinking about. Maybe this whole reunion in the sheriff's department echoing when Cooper in season two realizes who the killer is. That's when he's in the roadhouse and they gather everybody together Mm -hmm. and the giant appears and the ring comes back to him. And Joel was thinking about it in terms of like if, you know, David never actually liked the way that played out because David did not direct that episode of the show. Um if this was like a commentary on like how absurd the premise was that like, Oh, what Cooper needed in order to reconnect or, or make that connection was to just have everybody in the right place. Um, and the bombast of that still doesn't explain to me why it has to be this fucking orb. I just don't like the orb. No, I have no idea. I can't, it was not great. Uh, 
but then it's over. There are a couple of false starts where you're like, finally, and then it keeps going, but then it's over. And that's that's like the end of Mr. C. He goes into the red room. Mike takes care of him. Yeah. Great. That's over. It's amazing that for for characters like the Mitchums and Mandy Candy and Sandy, for whom I had no expectations and then grew to love. It's amazing that even they're like cutting in after this fucking CG ball bash takes place, like isn't enough to like lift my mood. But there's some like took the fucking words right out of my mouth. Um, and Candy interrupting Cooper's monologue to talk about finger sandwiches and like being glad that they brought enough for all these fucking people. Like it's funny, but it's not enough to like get that bad yeah. taste out of my mouth. Yeah, and that should be a feel-good, like, easy win moment for the series to have all of these, like, fun characters together. You have Nato, you have Freddy, you have James, you... I don't know where Billy is at this point. Maybe he's in that room. I wasn't looking for him. No, he's not in the room. uh, Mr. C's body, which disappears. But you got Coop, Hawk, Truman, both Mitchums, Mandy Candy Sandy, Gordon, Albert, Tammy, and Bobby. And these are all the people that we've kind of invested in and spent time with. And this is the end of their arcs is just they get a one off. What the fuck happened line? We all as the audience gets to go. Yeah, buddy, me too. And then that's it for all of these arcs. Yeah, it's it's pretty unsatisfying, but I want to focus on the one for whom it's the biggest slight. And I think that is Bobby. And I'm not just saying that because we love Bobby Briggs and he's in our amazing podcast cover art made by Cole Hamilton. It's because Bobby was being built up as this interesting connection to the major Briggs storyline that feels ultimately like it's missing a couple steps. And it's so odd that Bobby doesn't even get to be in the room for like the, the destruction of Bob. He comes in afterwards and then Cooper just addresses him as though he's major Briggs. He's like, Oh Bobby, your dad wouldn't understand what's going on. And it's just like, that line means nothing. But I think the the real tragedy is the, or the real like loss on the part of the story is the parallels that were drawn between Laura and Becky that we are, we as viewers are never going to explore. And that the return for whatever reason wasn't interested in after making these gestures. Um, and I think that that's really sad because we talk so much about how Laura is the heart of the show. And I think that Becky, I don't know if like, I would have loved the idea that like, there's this like reincarnation of Laura, but it was certainly another way to explore a, a young teenage, uh, a young woman's experiences in these cycles of abuse and self-destruction. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's like it's that, that that's a that's a at this point it's a wrap on that entire storyline and it's it's a bummer and after Bobby walks in we get the reunion of Cooper and Diane and I'll just say this that feels so unearned and so inadequately explained by like the uh you know Lynchian dream logic at work and also I'm sorry but it was a crime to put that wig on Laura Dern. That was like the anti-look. The real crime was casting an Asian actress on a show that has a history of yellow face 
and then making her into Laura Dern. Oh my God. When you put it in those terms, I just came to the realization that NATO is just the Tajamura of the return. I don't know if I would go that far, but you 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 bringing up Yellowface again makes that no, that's like abundantly clear. Even though it's an actual Asian actress, it's it is one step removed from being the Tajamura of it the is, return. It is it, it is in in many ways the same, and it also gets into like the objectification of NATO's body versus the treatment of Diane's body and her trauma and whatever happens there. But this is fully the moment where I was like. I'm fucking done. Like we had talked about this possibility before and I don't know if I had said this on the podcast, but I had really felt like taking a character played by an Asian actress and turning her into Laura Dern was a huge misstep. And fuck, I didn't. It is, I didn't... It is a huge misstep on that level. It also robs the, the scene in part three of some of its mystery. You know, this introduction of a character, uh, who we don't know and like that that scene in part three where we first meet nato is so entrancing and it's like the the first part where you know the return starts to blow out the mythology of the show in this like eye-opening wild way anyway the the makeout scene is bad i will say i have a couple quotes here from some particularly good post finale takes i read a lot of them a lot of them i felt like were trying hard to and i and i honestly like as someone who wrote a three thousand plus word thing about twin peaks in the week leading up to the finale it's hard it's hard work uh in the idea of being a tv critic and and recapper who doesn't want to just shit on things every week um but some of them felt like they were in the most veiled terms to be interesting to a reader trying to come to some resolution after being disappointed with the finale like the writer skill of doing that work for them without at all being happy with what transpired was some of it. I appreciated the, the candidness of Jess Zimmerman, who was writing for vice about the finale, which was uh, in uh, the articles titled the twin peaks finale. Doesn't care if you're mad. True. Um, And this quote, I wrote, quote, personally, I don't think they should kiss, end quote, six times in my notes in increasingly desperate fonts. And it's just like, yes, that is that was my feeling. And I was glad to see someone say it in their recap, in their analysis of the finale, that the sudden Cooper Diane romance was another part where there's just like, we don't it doesn't make sense. It doesn't. Did you know that they make out for 30 full seconds? (laughs) I did not time it. I did not time it. I was watching on the Hulu app and they have that 10 second skip ahead button. So I hit it (laughs) and they were still making out and I hit it and they were still making out and then I hit it again and it was over. Thank God. But that's a, that's a really long time. And like, here is the thing. I feel like sometimes TV shows shove a little heterosexual romance in. And I just don't, I totally miss the moment where we're supposed to, to care i totally miss like what investment we're supposed to have as a viewer and i don't know if that's just like me coming from like a queer experience but i feel like so often we're just presented with these heterosexual pairings on tv particularly where the guy 
is the more prominent character and is more invested, is given some investment in that relationship. And we never see that from the um, the other character. Legion, Legion was one that I had that moment with where I was watching that show and the main character like meets this girl and he's like very, very obsessed with her. And I thought there was a commentary going on there about men being obsessed with women who don't reciprocate their feelings. But then all of a sudden that relationship became very central to like what was going on in the show. And I was like, we don't even know a Holly. Why? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Why do you, why is she invested in this at all? We don't know that. And when we get to the later, uh, <laughs> uh to again, cite Jess Zimmerman from vice here, um, horrible sex scene. I don't approve of, uh, is Jess's words um, in part 18 between Cooper and Diane. I think there's a way of reading it for whatever it's worth as a, as a rebuttal to people who for years and years and years assumed that Diane was ultimately Cooper's great love. Um, like Coop, Diane shippers when Diane was a character who was forever off screen, but like that's a thing in Twin Peaks fandom, but the of, of the ways to respond to the show's like cultural baggage, the last thing I would need the finale to do is tell people who were like Coop and Diane forever uh, that they're wrong. Like, sure, but it's not worth it. I don't know. So Cooper has his fucking face overlaid over the screen at this point in a very off-putting move um i still don't know what to make of that the pivotal line that he delivers in the sheriff station quoting philip jeffries in the philadelphia office from firewalk with me we live inside a dream um and then things go dark and only diane and cooper and gordon cole warp to the basement of uh the great northern as though like Things are just falling down around them, and this is Cooper's exit point. Um, right, and he's specifically asked for the Great Northern Key yes. that Frank Truman has, and lo and behold, it opens the door with the mysterious humming, and eternal martyr Dale Cooper is like, you guys can't follow me, but hope to see you again. At the curtain call. But he's looking, he he's yes. looking specifically at Diane in that moment, which is significant. Yes. Um, Aside from the fact she's like, okay, so why are we supposed to buy that when they got rid of key cards at the Great Northern, they just reinstalled Cooper's door lock on this door in the basement? It doesn't need to make any sense. But 315 was the number of Cooper's room. And mm -hmm. in reference to the 253 earlier, which Cooper was like, it adds up to 10, the number of completion. It does not. 315 is one number off. It adds up to nine. That's true. Fundamentally yeah. incomplete. Like my soul feels. No. Um, <laughs> Cooper walks through and is greeted by who I want to say is Philip Gerard at this point because he's not talking backwards. Who in a, in, a, in, a, in a moment that when we were watching it together did send a chill up my spine when he recites the, the, the yes. fire walk with me uh, refrain. Um, and then they go to see Philip Jeffries. Philip Jeffries spews some steam, asks if he's said this to Cooper before, draws the owl cave symbol that then transforms into an infinity mark, which also flips, which is just like, you're layering so much symbology on at the same time. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to make of this. And I don't care. 
uh, is how I felt in the moment and kind of how I felt on a rewatch. And then we revisit Fire Walk with me and I will I will start us talking about the end of part 17 like this and I'll say if there's anything I can't fault the finale for not doing the finale doesn't forget that this is ultimately a story about Laura. It might not do it in a way that I feels like I feel like even touches the meaning and poignance and and artistic achievement of Fire Walk with me, you know, but it I'll say this from this point onwards, I was just like, well, the show, even if it, you know, takes a turn and and makes Laura into a deity, which it also did not do. David and Mark did not forget that Laura is core to the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately for us, Cooper didn't either. And I think he fucked up big time. (laughs) I fully agree. Um. How how did you feel when we started watching like actual footage from Firewalk with me recontextualized with Cooper being the figure that Laura looked at and screamed at in the woods and everything? Um, I was fine with that. I mean, we all know that I like Firewalk with me a lot. I feel like I was maybe even a little relieved that we were at least returning to something that I didn't hate. Um, but yeah, how about I do this? think like. That scene that we get replayed for us is the one where Laura flips off James, which of all the scenes we could have replayed from Fire Walk (gasps) with me, it feels like a fitting coda that at the end of part two, Shelly reassures us that James has always been cool. But at the end of part 17, Laura is there to remind us, no, 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 James has never been shit. (laughs) I had, I, you know what? Part 17, that's a point in its, in its favor for reminding us that James, at least as a teenager, was the worst. <laughs> yep, yep. Um but we do see whatever. Like <laughs> so how did you feel about the time travel move? Like were you whatever, were you checked out still at them actually having the gall to to take that step? Because this is something we've discussed on the show when we had Scott on as a guest. He was wondering if there was going to be a go back in time and and oh, right. wipe yeah. the slate clean. Um, and time travel has been like a thing at the fringes of Twin Peaks this whole time after Fire Walk with me. But this is like literally someone traveling. Well, maybe massive air quotes around literally, but it's Cooper going back to 1989 and sparing Laura from her fate, complete with footage of fucking Ronette and Leo and Jacques, which is just wild. Like, right. Did you think that we were going to go for like a, were you all convinced that we were going to go for the time travel reset last hour, see what that happens to look like? Okay, I was very concerned that that was going to happen because so many things had already happened that I did not like at that point. Um, And I think I said this before, like, I think that doing a full Tabula Rasa reset would have been really reductive for the show um and i think that like the the cosmic like good and evil themes that they were or parallels that they were drawing during part eight would have been um wouldn't have been served by that kind of like oh we'll just go back and like stop laura from dying and then bring her to her parents and everything will be fine as though she like 
As though Laura was not also traumatized by things that were happening in her family outside of her father's possession by Bob. Exactly. Exactly. Um, And at the very least, in, in the moment of watching it, I was wondering like, okay, if this is where we're going, if we're actually doing the time travel thing, you can't set everything right. There cannot be, it would not be honest to what has happened in the story like the core of what happened to Laura Palmer would not be, you cannot fix that. You cannot in the narrative, put a button on that and, you know, do the imagine a better world time travel ending kind of thing. There will have to be some complication. I did not anticipate in the slightest how that was going to play out, but it did not, uh, it did not go that way. The seeing the body vanished from the shore and then having the Josie, Pete and Catherine thing from the premiere play out was like incredibly affecting for better or worse. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not the way I would have wanted Jack Nance remembered in the show. I don't think in terms of being like really enamored with his performance throughout the show as like one of the few people who even in season two, even in scenes with Tajamura, it was always a little delight to see Jack Nance like do his thing. Um, but the moment when I was sucked back in after I was feeling kind of rotten about this and feeling like, are they really going to do the reset on Laura and have it be all hunky dory and maybe some things have changed kind of like it's a wonderful lifestyle. No, you get the really chilling scene in the Palmer household of Sarah wailing in the distance and then entering the room and just smashing that picture frame. Mm-hmm. Um, Again, like part eight, some in part three, some really interesting editing with the the scrubbing and reversing and so forth. And the picture of Laura not at all being marred by the bottle, smashing right. the glass yeah. around it is fucking wild. Cooper leads Laura through the forest. That's right. that's a and weird setup. <laughs> yeah. So what I was going to say is what I don't like about that. And I think our friend Joel has a good take on why this happens the way it does but what really bothered me in my initial watch is cooper intercepting laura as she goes to leo and jacques and ronette instead of cooper confronting bob i it just created the sense that coop was saving laura from herself when laura i think was dealing with her trauma and her pain in in the best way that she knew how. And the, the, the problem was Bob. The problem was Leland. The problem was this person who was doing these horrible, horrible things to her. The problem wasn't how Laura was dealing with those things. Although they certainly, it certainly didn't help that she became so self-destructive. But I think the more powerful version of that, if they had chosen to go this route would have been um, for Coop to confront Bob slash Leland. But that, but I don't like Tabula Rasa as a whole, so right. big qualification on that. I mean, I will say this. If instead of having it be Cheryl walking through the woods as Laura and Cooper appears, if it had been Cooper walks up to the train car and just fucking shoots Ray Wise, uh, shoots Leland, like that would have been fucking... My, my mind would have been considerably more blown than by the, you know, for ages, like pined after by some fans resolution whereby Cooper goes back and fixes everything. Like the moment time travel was gestured at people were like, well, maybe somehow this could play out where none of this could have ever happened. It's just like, that's not honest to the core of the show. And then the show doesn't give us either of those things. And 
after the repetition of the in our house now sound, that weird scratching sound from the phonograph in part one, uh, Laura's gone. And we get Julie Cruz singing the war- the world spins. And that's part 17. There we are. And at this point, when we were watching it, you and I felt pretty bad. Real bad. And yet it just kept going. But the part 18 gets off to a more positive start. And I will say this. I saw a lot of people and I expressed some disappointment to some people uh, close to the show and other people watching the show. Um, I like part 18 more than I like 17. I'm not super happy with every decision made in part 18. But part 17, I cannot look past the Bob Orb and the 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 way in which that part establishes that all these other plot lines are not going to be touched on um, mm-hmm. and given any kind of further contextualization or what have you. Um, but part 18 is, is engrossing in parts and raises a lot of interesting questions. And that begins with Laura not like, or rather it begins with Cooper not being able to just simply whisk Laura away to the white lodge and save her. Like, that was a moment where I was like, even if I don't like the decisions that they're making in these other regards, David and Mark seem to know that that can't be the way this plays out. It can't be so simple. And so morally, look at the upstanding FBI agent who saves the the girl in distress. Um, right. Well, and the other thing I was thinking about was the fact that the person who gives Cooper the directive to find Laura is Leland. Leland in the red room says, Cooper, find Laura. Or he doesn't address him that way, but he says, find Laura. And... Why? Why should he follow Leland's direction? Don't don't listen to Leland. Like, he had some kind of hand in being, like, the instrument of his daughter's abuse. Like, that was not a good direction to listen to. No, not at all. Um, But let's let's set aside Dale Cooper, who's not Dale Cooper for much longer. Um, for a second and part 18 opens with the doppelganger burning in the chair which is a great mm-hmm. image I do like that it doesn't I don't know what it means but it's happening and then the manufacturing of Dougie 2.0 which is maybe the one moment of actual like genuine positivity I felt in all of the finale I cannot believe I'm fucking saying this but like after my frustrations and my reservations about the whole Dougie thing and then coming around and then my reservations and frustrations with the finale, I do genuinely like that the the, the Dougie storyline is like resolved on a happy note. I don't like it made me smile a second time when I saw it again, him coming to the house uh, and saying home and being reunited with Janie and Sonny Jim. I don't know why. (laughs) but it did yeah i mean that it's that storyline just gets the payoff that you are set up for you know cooper leaves vegas he says i'm gonna get you a new dougie basically and then they get a new dougie and that's just how (laughs) like payoff works in a in a regard yeah but like also of all the things we could have predicted back in like part six like being excited most by the dougie or like most fulfilled by the dougie payoff in the last hour is like would not have ranked on my no list at all um here we are here we are so 
following that, we revisit and recontextualize a lot of the part two Red Room scenes, including some new stuff. Uh, the evolution of the arm asks Cooper, is it the story of the little girl who lived down the lane? Is it? And then cuts to Laura whispering in Cooper's ear before she vanishes from the Red Room with a very similar, if not exact same scream that Laura uh, emits once she vanishes from Cooper in the forest. And this is the only thing we get to connect what we're seeing now to whatever the hell was happening to Audrey Horn is the little girl who lived down the lane. Yep. Um, I think now's as good a time as any. We don't need to save this for the end, but I think, I think Sherilyn Fenn was underused, if not misused in the show. Um, I don't think that Audrey was, was given the space that she should have as a character at all. And I'm not super interested in the behind the scenes politics of why we we were doing the show on the original run at the time when there was a dispute between Sherilyn and Showtime after having lobbied to bring David back to the show. And then this is the way it turns out. And then you have a week afterwards, Sherilyn retweeting people who are like, Audrey was not like fleshed out enough by the show. And then Sherilyn being like, you're right. Season four, let's do it. Um, set all that stuff aside it's still deeply unsatisfying that we have to do if we want to make peace with Audrey's part in the story at all we're going to have to go through some serious like theory crafting hoops to do so Um, yeah it stinks it does yeah and I mean I guess I feel like the arm saying that or like maybe implying the, the, the triangulation of the arm saying that cutting to Laura and also Audrey saying that in that scene that we get of her makes me think Audrey's not the little girl down the lane. Like it's not her story. And I just don't like, what's the, what's the point? Why include her? Yeah. It, it really feels as though, and, and here's the thing. And um, I once uh, I once took a class as anyone who will have ever listened to the stupid 14 hour long show I once recorded about Infinite Jest might know. So all two of you, um, I once took a class uh, in encyclopedic literature. And one of the things we would talk about constantly in that class is how you were compressing, you know, this representation of a cohesive world into the space of a book and then having that function by way of synecdoche and, and having things represent larger, uh, larger things than themselves. Right. And the Audrey storyline combined with the tossed off roadhouse scenes, like you can spend hours trying to put together pieces and and line up things such that that makes sense and works as a synecdoche for what's going on in Twin Peaks as a whole or can be explained by what else is going on. Like, you can do those theory crafting hoops. And this is one of the things I thought about in that class all the time was, like, we were reading, you know, novels that were a thousand plus pages in, at some points. And it just being like, if you wanted to create, like, a quote-unquote cohesive reading of this whole thing, 
you could absolutely cherry pick and take details away and contort them and twist them and present that as your reading without it actually holding up to too much scrutiny. And like, I'm worried that that's the fate that Audrey has been given because like there is a bunch to go off of in those Billy scenes and the scenes with Charlie. And there are little like scattered connections to things both in Twin Peaks and then like metatextual elements like Billy and us thinking Billy mm-hmm. Zane first off the, off the gate and so forth, but also the presumed Billy in the, uh, in the sheriff's station and what that could mean. I've seen, I've seen people theorizing that Billy is somehow Cooper as though, uh, NATO was Diane. And I'm just like, you know what? I don't fucking care. You can do that all day long. You didn't show us enough Audrey for any of that to have a proper heft and yeah, not pay off. Let's just set that word aside for a second, like a proper cohesion. Some, you know, it's like it's like a dream that someone woke you up halfway through. It's not a dream that you had through to completion, and then remembered afterwards. And we're like, ah, oh, now I see what that means. No, it was like it was cut off. It was lame. No, I agree. It's just wholly separate from the rest of the plot. And it seems like an afterthought. And Certainly it doesn't feel good for Audrey's character or for the viewership who, I mean, I feel like it's widely known and understood that Audrey is this enigmatic character who has her own following, who, um, I don't know, inspires a certain appreciation, I think, especially by female viewers and to just in her final moments of the series pull the rug out from under you and be like, actually, she's insert your Audrey theory here. It just feels like such a disservice to have it be like the ultimate and like weird meta. (laughs) Sorry to just put those two descriptors right next to one another, but like the scene uh, in the roadhouse calling out Audrey's dance, having her reenact it, having it be this like incredibly fan servicey moment that you also have this, dread about because you know then that this can't be real and to just leave it at that as like a commentary on fans taking the wrong thing away from 25 years of Twin Peaks fandom or like wanting the nostalgia play and getting it and then having the rug pulled out from under them it it's a choice but it's like a cruel choice that doesn't seem to have much going behind it other than like a rejection of nostalgia and a rejection of of finality for these characters for me it doesn't ring as like a brave or interesting choice or like an interesting statement it's it's bleak and it's not bleak in the way that like the rest of the the rest of part 18 plays out like the rest of part 18 after the once we hit odessa on my second rewatch, I kind of like part 18. I kind of like it as yeah, an ending. No, I'm the Audrey scene and the Audrey dance. It's I'm fully okay with like throwing out nostalgia and I'm fully on board with the idea that like the series is subverting nostalgia. But like the thing about Audrey and the thing about Shelly is that they were really interesting female characters who at certain parts in the series had their own agency audrey certainly more than shelly for a lot of the original Mm -hmm. series and they took on a life outside of the series because they were more developed they were more realized they were more interesting than female characters in other programs or that we generally see in media and that's fuck that just exists outside of 
this unnatural pining for or this, you know, misunderstanding of the quirkiness of seasons one and two. I don't I don't know. It just that had its own value. And it's so shitty to push that aside. Shelly's story seems diminished by the most you can take away is being caught in a cycle of being attracted to people who are bad for them. Audrey's is severely diminished by being bound up at best in this sort of many worlds, dream world, whatever you want to build your theory towards um, flavoring. And uh, Diane, as as an introduction, you know, finally to the mythos, is more interesting as a tulpa than she is as herself. And... Do you remember what I texted you about Diane? Uh, No, I don't. Not off the top of my head. Okay. This is a lame thing, but I think it's true. The Diane that we get, the the red wig Diane, who is supposed to be the real Diane for whatever it's worth, is just the manifestation of the cool girl monologue from Gone Girl. (laughs) Gone Girl is lame, but that section is true. This, uh, like, she... That monologue is about, like, the cool girl and how there's this, like, unreachable, like, image of being a good sexual object, basically, where you're supposed to not try or not care and then also achieve this effortless effortless sex appeal or this effortless whatever, romantic partnership. Um, And I feel like that's just... That's the Diane that we get. So much less personality. And she's just... Her entire being is just reactionary. She's just amenable to whatever is happening with her and Cooper. Whatever Cooper is dragging her through. And that's her defining characteristic. And you're having Laura Dern do that? That's just a waste. It is such a step down to have Diane be introduced to the story in the way she is to have Audrey be at the fringe of the story, having been sexually abused and having mothered a child who was the product of that abuse, but without ever dealing with how that actually affected her as a person. And it's similarly cheap to have Shelly, you know, just be caught up in this story with this fucking magician drug dealer that we're never going to have resolution to, especially coming after a film like Mulholland Drive and David's, you know, output where it was focusing on female characters and had some interesting things to say and gave those characters space to breathe and be complicated and so forth. And instead the fucking sex scene, which after the kissing, we'd already said like, no, 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 so much, so much kissing. And like, no offense to Laura Dern. She's acting the hell out of that scene. And it is, genuinely disturbing when it's just the sex scene playing out and Cooper seems like unfazed while Diane is like reacting and acting and it's just that fucking ominous music but they start with the platters song and then fade it out and then fade it back in which also then makes you think about part eight when that was playing in uh, White Sands and the Woodsman and you're just like how how are we supposed to think of these things as linking up? What does it mean that there's actually a guy in the band, the platters named David Lynch? What are we supposed to take away from this? Is this corny? Why is the scene going on so long? I'm sick of staring at Laura Dern's spine. 
I thought the sex scenes in Wild at Heart were gratuitous. I was wrong. This feels completely out of place. It was painful. It was painful to watch. And I and I'm not interested in theorizing as to why it happened. The only interesting thing to take away from it is when the reality seems to snap and having seen herself the night before outside the dingy motel, Cooper wakes up the next morning and he gets the note addressed to Richard from Linda. That's the only interesting part. And it could have been told with a scene that did not linger on them fucking for so goddamn long. It was just, it was so bad. And some people are saying that like, well, for some people are saying that the implicit reaction that Diane is having to being sexually intimate with someone who has the appearance of the person who sexually assaulted her as her putting her hands over Cooper's face. Sure. That's like interesting, but it's embedded in this scene. That's really objectifying Diane, this character we just met who has no discernible personality other than this affection for Cooper. That's enduring beyond all of these like horrific things that have happened to her because of Cooper for the last 25 years. Yeah. And we, so when Cooper leaves the world of twin pieces, we know it and says, I'll meet you at the curtain call after traveling back in time. He encounters Diane outside of the red room and they go on this journey. They cross another threshold. They have sex and then she leaves and it's just like, what was the point of it all. And the only thing you can take away from that at all is centered on Cooper. And it's that there was no point. And Cooper is just leading himself further and further down a path whereby he is fucking things up. And that's a way of thinking about it, but it's incredibly bleak. And it's like where I still sit on where the rest of this episode goes is like, there are other ways to interpret this. Sure. But like the, the last part of part 18 for me is like, Set aside all the things that you and I have thought were poorly executed. Set aside the actual plot jumps that have been made. By the point at which you're looking for Cooper, uh, or you're you're watching Cooper looking for someone who looks like Laura or who is Laura, and bringing Laura to the house where all the abuse happened again in an attempt to set things right. The message, the takeaway is, you can't fix this. And it's incredibly yeah. bleak. And that's better than saying you can fix it, but it is, um, it's gutting. It's not, it's, um, it's the least fun to watch Twin Peaks has ever been outside of like the really heavy parts in Fire Walk With Me, which also have a different resonance than this. Um, and at least feel like they're building towards something that's not so on its face, just, you know, futile. I guess. Um, but we should still talk about it nonetheless. Um, eat at Judy's. Another diner. Yeah. The man we know as Cooper, like, opens up that letter that says, that's addressed to Richard. And I think this character is not Cooper. Yeah. There's, Kyle has such distinct performances from Dougie to Mr. C to finally seeing Cooper. And this is not Cooper. He goes to Judy's diner and he behaves in this kind of violent, like non-charming way that has this tone of Mr. C, but it's, it's not, it's, um, it's just, it's a new character. It's Richard. And this is, this is a different person. And, And I'll say like, he's selling that 
effectively. And I think I think in a post finale interview with the Hollywood Reporter, if I'm not mistaken, he basically said as much that he was approaching those scenes from a different place of of thinking and, and embodying that character. But um, you know, it all I also get this tinge of like, you know, trying to hold on to what his miss what his mission is, you know, um what he's supposed to be here and not just like, I don't know, giving into this Richard persona. Um I, I would be I would be remiss to not say that like on a second watch the scene in the Judy's diner, um where he shoots those shitty cowboys, one of them in the foot, and then deep fries their guns. It's a it's a pretty good scene. It is it is it is full on David doing David in a way that I like yeah. and not in a way where it's just like, why why do we have to see Kyle and Laura have sex for so long? Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't think we're supposed to have other takeaways. I think it's just like presenting Richard, basically this new character. Yeah. yeah. Um, And the idea of putting guns in a deep fryer is just kind of fucking hilarious to me i don't know why you know what's like the like the the delivery in kyle's performance is so different but the line that really to me was like this is not dale cooper when kyle says i don't know if the oil is hot enough to like make the bullets go off or whatever i was like dale cooper would never do that dale cooper would never put innocent yeah innocent citizens in danger by impulsively dropping guns in a deep fryer. You know, he would be sure. He would have taken the bullets out and then dropped them in the deep fryer. Yeah. And so he gets the address and moves on to the house uh, 1516 in Odessa, Texas with the same electrical pole that we saw in Fire Walk With Me and at the Fat Trout Trailer Park this season right outside. I wish I had the energy to read into what that means. I really do. It's ominous. I gasped when I first saw it and I think it means that there's something afoot here which isn't just like I don't think that this world is separate from lodge intervention but I'm not interested in really teasing out what it is Coop or Richard I'll say Coop because that's how he identifies himself uh in this mm-hmm. second half of part 18 meets Carrie Page and again another scene I like especially seeing Cheryl Lee get to have some real non-red room lines with her Texan accent and this getting to be a different character, which is, I can't say, you know, it's, it's not, not fun. Um, and lines like Washington DC and having to be like, no, 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 Washington state, uh, or like asking if she needs a coat, if it's going to be cold or being Mm -hmm. like, I don't have any food here. Like, in the moment watching the finale, maddening. I'm just like, get to whatever you're getting to. And of course, I was going to be mm-hmm. further upset by the long car ride that follows. But um, there, it's like, it's fun. It's fun to see that Cooper yeah. has arrived there with a single-minded mindset. And like this person, outside of reacting somewhat to Sarah and seeming to have something come through there, doesn't seem invested and just like shot this dude and wants to get out of Dodge. And it's like, that's perfect. Yep. That's great. Yeah. No, fully on board with Carrie page. Do you, do you have any thoughts as to like, I don't know. There are some people theorizing that Carrie is the page that was missing from Laura's diary, which is a little too on the nose and strategy, but like, 
there's also the people pointed out that Odessa, Texas, uh, there's like a jackrabbit that's like one of like the sights to see in Odessa, Odessa, Texas. Like this is set up as this like mirror alternate world. And does any of that stuff work for you or do you just accept it and move on? Does any of it actually resonate with you on another level? Oh, I don't think there's any significance to the setting at all. I think it's I think the last 30 seconds, the 30 last 30 minutes are nihilist and i think they are absurdist and i'm fully invested in them and i'm having a lot of fun with them but you don't care about but, reading but, into but I think, yeah i think no, i'm there with no, you I, I, yeah i don't think there's a point i think like electricity whatever like we're always gonna have ominous shots of electricity whenever they can film a telephone pole or whatever <laughs> sure. but like i don't think we need to be examining the uh, connections otherwise sure so they uh they leave with the phone ringing as they leave which is a nice nice touch in terms of like carrie page's life is off the rails here um though seemingly of her own design and uh cheryl gets a nice little monologue during the long dark car ride um i tried to keep a clean house keep everything organized it's a long way and then she seems to kind of fall half asleep and say in those days i was too young to know any better um Mm. and i don't see any of that as like a commentary on the show or like you know an awakening of laura carrie has more reason to be paranoid and to care about like whether or not there's a car falling than the cooper does at this point like cooper is single-minded to a fault at this point um yeah and maybe that's always been cooper's fault is that he's single-minded and they arrive in twin peaks uh the double r is missing it's to go signage um, but it is mm-hmm. the double R. And if they had wanted to be especially wry in terms of implying that this was not the world of Twin Peaks, but was our world, they could have left off the double R neon, but they didn't. It's true. Uh, it is on there. Um, and the person who they meet at the Palmer household is played by Mary Reber, who actually owns the Palmer house in Everett, Washington. Why the fuck not? <laughs> Why the fuck not? Why not just get... Yeah. I don't I don't want to say like, oh, look, they're in our world now. I know that's like really tempting, but it. You know, yeah. Why why not? I mean, here's the thing. I don't think it would ever be cross David's mind to be like the reason we're doing this is to to get meta and to make people think they're in our world. But to just be like, maybe this person can deliver the lines just as good as anybody else. Why not? Yeah. No, I think David was probably like. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for letting us use your house. You want to read some lines? Alice Tremond, as portrayed by Mary Reaver, uh, greets them at the door. Carrie has no recognition of the house or anything in Twin Peaks. Tremond tells them that the last people who own this house were the Chalfonts. And Cooper maybe betrays that he recognizes those names the slightest bit before walking away. And they walk away. Cooper says a line that will be forever misquoted. Uh, He says, what year is this? Not what year is it? Which I saw misquoted in recaps of the episode. And it's just like, come on. Come on, guys. Um, Carrie hears the voice of Sarah Palmer cry out Laura pulled directly from the, the pilot screams. The lights go out. We get some ominous really darkly sad Angelo music over the credits. And we see the footage 
slowed way, way down of Laura whispering to Dale in the lodge or in the red room. And um, uh, that's, uh, that's a wrap on Twin Peaks. That's, uh, yeah, that's it. I really like the I really like the the way the ending plays out and throwing the Tremond and Chalfont thing in there is an interesting wrench to throw in there that I'm like, again, like many things, utterly uninterested yeah. in analyzing now but somewhat perfect given that they were not referenced up until the very end and have right. always been, especially in fire walk with me, the more hard to, to place um, lodge residents, you know? Yeah. And, and in particular interest of David's having appeared first in coma, which was a, the second episode of season two that David directed. And I, uh, mm-hmm. and then again in, fire walk with me like that's where they had the most I mean, impact yeah like the the tremond grandson was played by his own son yeah there's certainly that connection there and i mean like just the invocation of those names is suggestive of the fact that like the lodge or the forces that be are still yeah up to something at this point which is great that's fine um I do really like the last 30 minutes. I liked it when we were watching it. I don't know if you remember this, but I was like laughing hysterically when this was happening. Yeah. Yeah, you were. Um, but I don't know. And and, and I think I'm going to get this out of the way because there's, there's lots of different readings out there and people trying to come to grips and say, it's a happy ending. It's a bad ending. It's what have you. Um, if there's one thing I really appreciate the finale for, it is shoving in our faces that of all the things we have to reconceptualize or actively think of when we're watching Twin Peaks, when we're rewatching Twin Peaks from this point on, is that Cooper isn't just a flawed hero. It's that Cooper's impulses, his heroic impulses, his like infectious uh way of being and his cheery disposition all this stuff like that's separate from what drives him as an fbi agent and as like a a bringer of justice and it has never been on the mark not throughout the show originally and not here in the end when he's given this like he's basically given the keys to the cosmic plane and different realities and so forth and thinks that it can be set right by saving mm-hmm. Laura. That's not his place to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I or he goes about it the wrong way. At least that. At least that. And yeah. again, he went about. He he failed in the original show. You can't read the death of Maddie in the original show as something unpreventable, like the fireman. Mm-hmm you know, descends to the plane of Twin Peaks in, in the roadhouse and says it is happening again and looks mortified. And at this point, like, Cooper had ample time to to do the legwork, which, you know, it was a, that was a failure. It was another person claimed by, by Bob. Um, Cooper has never been perfect. And this ending mm-hmm. illustrates in a lot of different ways how he hasn't been. And maybe the best version of Cooper ever has been Dougie Jones the whole time. <laughs> Certainly could be just letting uh, Janie take the wheel. I don't I don't feel bummed by the last 30 minutes, but like they are really bleak. I don't know. I enjoy them. I don't 
know if I can really articulate like why that doesn't gut me quite so much. Um, I don't know. Let's talk about what was left unresolved and talk about what I think are like this for me, the serious structural sins of expectation that the finale like commits, which is just like Twin Peaks the return for as adventurous and different from anything else you've watched on television. It's been in its styling and its pacing and the way it presents itself and pursues storylines. I kind of captured this when I said like with the usual Lynch dream logic and something like a lost highway or a Mulholland drive, it feels like you have the pieces you need not to make sense of it, but to appreciate it. And it's like, there were storylines and things established in the return that just like were established mostly on the level of TV story that then weren't closed up. And I don't think that the show can just like be let off the hook for that. Um, it's still a TV show at the end of the day. It used the Audrey reveal as a fucking cliffhanger and then just had it be a frustrated cliffhanger. Harry Truman was invoked even in part 17. Nice. And that led to nothing but like a sad appreciation for the fact that that wasn't even an actor who couldn't be in the show. It's an actor who chose not to be in the show. Mm-hmm. And we were constantly reminded of that. Um you said, I think, yeah, I mean, wonderfully about Becky and the parallels to Laura Palmer that were never tied up. This is all. Yeah. I mean, I think there's there's a fundamental difference between the way that loose threads are left hanging in Mulholland Drive, because that movie also has a lot of red herrings. Like, what the fuck is up with the cowboy? Like, what's happening with Justin Thoreau's character? And like, it's just all of this like atmospheric strangeness that ultimately doesn't matter because of just like where the story is taking you and these storylines that we're identifying as our point of frustration in Twin Peaks feel different just in the way that they're set up and the way that we as viewers are made to feel invested in them or made to connect them to other storylines that we're also invested in you know what I mean like I think we both have an appreciation for the ways in which David Lynch can confound us, but this feels distinctly different in the ways it disappoints exactly. us. Exactly. It's not a, it's not a matter of not having all the answers. It's not a matter of um feeling like you know, we've been taken for a ride and we don't under, and we don't like follow along with everything. When you were talking about like characters like Shelley and Audrey living on throughout the last 25 years because they were you know at their best like good female characters on television who were doing things and um i mean we could talk about like as problematic as the bobby shelley like scheming around comatose leo was we can talk about our ups and downs with audrey from really loving her in season one to the string of episodes where she's sidelined and just like drugged up in one-eyed jacks to the Audrey resurgence to the Civil War lows to Billy Zane. There's good and bad. And the thing is that what we got was not even either of those. It was using those characters in a totally different way and hinting at hinting at complete storylines for them. We were introduced to new characters who didn't amount to much. It's not to say like, oh man, I really wondered what's happening with Wally Brando. But like Red was introduced in such a way and tied to so many different things were not giving us some kind of clue as to what's up with him 
just feels like a waste of time in a television show, whereas in a movie, it might not. In a movie, it might not. And I think one of the things that people will, one of the interpretations of this ending that people will go back to when they try to justify these unresolved threads is when Sarah calls out Laura's name from the house at the end of part 18, that's when Sarah is calling to Laura as though Laura is in the house and the pilot doesn't know Mm -hmm. that Laura's not there yet. Uh, And some people have read this as like everything in part 18 when they cross over is Laura's dream, or this has all been Laura's dream. And this is a dream that Laura has constructed to deal with having been abused and that she will wake up the morning of the next day and will never have experienced savior from an upstanding FBI agent in any way or have had her death mean something to the whole town or anything and isn't even dead and is alive. And I think that that's one the it's all a dream works so much better in Mulholland drive where there's so many layers to that. And you have the silencio capper at the end, then mm-hmm. it would ever sit well with me here. And interpretation of the finale where we've crossed into someone's dream or it's always been someone's dream doesn't free the show from what good shows do, which is to have stories with some kind of beginning, middle and end, whether or not they're following conventional TV logic or overplayed narratives or dream logic. You still things when things are complete, they feel complete. They don't feel left aside not even a cliffhanger it's not even a cliffhanger for like the bobby shelley stuff it's just not done the audrey thing is a cliffhanger and the audrey thing has its hooks into what's going on in part 17 and 18 but also audrey's part in those hooks feels left to the side and unfinished and not done well and it 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 also doesn't feel like those storylines are living and progressing outside of the show yeah. Sometimes shows can create that impression that there is a world happening outside of whatever we as viewers are privy to, and that's definitely not happening here. Yeah, that's another thing to, again, dip in the well of talking about encyclopedism. I would never try to apply that term to Twin Peaks because I think wisely um, and poignantly, it does return to the idea about this being centered on one person and despite how much we've blown out the scope of the world in the return and including other places in our regular, like plotting and so forth, it, it all comes back to twin peaks and it all comes back to the inciting drama of twin peaks. I, I appreciate it for being about that one thing and containing so many multitudes without making, which I feel like would have been the move if Laura had been elevated to some kind of cosmic good level of saying, this is about all good and all evil. And it's not it. Um, it's it's David and Mark. I think the end of it focusing in on that, but maybe to the detriment of the good TV characters. I don't know. Now I feel like I'm rambling. If I haven't already been, I'm looking at some good quotes I took down from some some post finale analysis. Um, did you read anything that felt like it worked for you afterwards? No, no. I mean, I told you when we were watching this, if we didn't have the podcast, if we were not watching that finale together, I would not have finished it. I would not have kept going. I would have turned my TV off. Wow. Just because, like, if if I've done this with other shows where I knew that they were going in a direction that was going to just frustrate me as a viewer, like, 
weeds when they move out of that um the the suburban community that the se- the series starts out in or Dexter after the season four finale, like that kind of stuff. I feel very confident about my decisions to not continue down those threads. I don't know now that I've watched it, like I think that there is some value to those last 30 minutes of part 18. And I think that there's perhaps some values to the first 30 minutes of part 17. But honestly, had it just been me watching by myself with no obligation to finish it for any reason, I don't know that I would have. Have you ever tapped out of a different show right at the finale? Mm, no, I don't think I have. But I don't think... No, it's, it's just, I was I just curious as to whether or not that had happened ever. No. I haven't done that, um, but I don't think I have a problem with that. I don't think I would be like, oh, well, I just have like one more episode. Like, I might yeah, as well, no, like- you, you wouldn't have a problem just saying like, nope. Um, Fuck it. Let me let me read out some of these quotes and, and we can talk about whether or not they 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 capture something here. Um, this is Josh mm-hmm. Wiegler from um, The Hollywood Reporter. It was a gut shot, the slow be- bleeding kind of wound, and we were kicked out of the car on the side of the road left to live in that pain it's a visceral i don't like that word personally me um visceral and infuriating way to end the series but i will never forget the way this ending made me feel in the moment and that's more than i can say for most shows in the era of peak tv true i won't forget how i feel about the finale or felt watching it the first time um but i also won't forget how i felt watching the breaking bad finale for the first time for instance so i don't know it's not it's not as though all those shows that are more conventional in their structure are disposable at the end of it. Um, I'll say this for, uh, this is from Sean O'Neill at the AV club. The AV club, I think had a very interesting write up at the end that focused mainly on the actors who, who passed away uh, either before or in the course of filming or after Um, it spent a lot of time talking about that. And uh, that's why I pulled this quote. Um, there are many ways of interpreting the return. Of course, we're only a few days into the next 25 years of articles, books, and Oberlin courses. It will expire, but this one might be the most satisfying, at least emotionally in all its thrilling, occasionally maddening elusiveness. The real closure Twin Peaks gave us was the chance to say goodbye and nothing about the finale, good or bad will change the way. Like I feel about the fact that like we got to have Miguel Ferrer return as Albert who had some really great scenes. We got to have Catherine Coulson, like right as the production started, they managed to film with her and give the log lady a really touching send off. There were missteps again, the Bob orb, but I feel like, I mean, for whatever it's worth, the guy they got to do the Philip Jeffries voice did not do a good job uh, (laughs) of replicating that bad hacky American accent. Um, but like to to reference what Brendan said on past episodes of our show about it, like maybe being a mistake to bring this show back because so many people were gone or unable to come back um, or didn't want to. In the case of Michael Ontkeen, I, I don't feel that way. I'm still glad that we had this because a lot of those moments uh, hit home for me and they relate to a Mark Frost quote. I can't believe I haven't brought up um, in our coverage of the return to this point. Um, but I, I'll, I'll save that for, do, do you feel like there's value in that sense of like having had this show back as like at least closure for 
Twin Peaks and the culture and for the actors and actresses returning um, in, in, in any sense, not for everybody. We've already said it's done some characters and actors a disservice, but. Um, I think for specifically Catherine Coulson and Miguel Ferrer, I think that's definitely true. I think in terms of like Twin Peaks as a cultural phenomenon or like the cultural phenomenon it has become since it went off the air, I don't think that's true. I think that 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 the original series has a life of its own that's definitely going to persist apart from and distinctly from the return. And I think that there is some value to the return. I don't want to dismiss it as a whole, but I ultimately don't think it can provide closure to what is so beloved about the original series. And it's not trying to do that by any means. It's not a failure on the part of the return to not do that. No, I think I think in terms of its relationship to the original series, the return is at least in part consciously constructed to to not provide that closure and to maybe undermine the desire for that. I mean, it's undeniable that um, Twin Peaks in a big way and the way it's appreciated after the fact, like a lot of it gets reduced down or recycled to become kitsch and to not engage with the darker aspects of the story, to not engage with the Laura and Leland relationship in the slightest and to, you know, people who just still to this day don't like fire walk with me, you know, they were probably never going to be the ones to be given anything in terms of closure by the return, except for seeing you know, characters on screen again after 25 years, except for that nostalgia rush. Um, again, from Jess Zimmerman at Vice, um, part of me wanted this to be satisfying, of course. I mean, at least a little satisfying, a little beautiful, like the end of part 17. I'm not sure that the end of part 17 would have worked for me in that way. We should step aside from this Zimmerman quote to say, LP watched part 17. LP of Run to the Jewels watched part 17 and <laughs> thought it was the finale. How weird must that have been? Uh, to think I wish his publicist would respond to my email <laughs> how weird it must be to think that the, just that hour just that showdown and then the but also travel, to be like God. oh like I don't understand what people are so upset about like that was just a very conventional normal TV finale and then for people to be like oh no dude no no dude it goes more places Um, so Zimmerman again I've always known deep down that people who are looking to be fundamentally satiated should watch a different show. And it's like, yeah, that's true. It's true. It's true with this finale in a totally different sense of like the fucking real ass cliffhangers that David and Mark built into the part two finale or sorry, season two finale. Um, Like they wanted the show to come back at that point and they set up threads and it doesn't feel like they're doing that here. No. Can we talk about the Mark Frost quote that I think you and I talked about excitedly when he said it in December? We might have referenced this in our Secret History episode. I'm not sure. But uh, it was something that got me excited about the direction the finale goes. Or, sorry, the return goes. And Mm -hmm. in light of the finale, I I can appreciate the sentiment, if not have it change my ideas about the finale. Um, Tell me what's up. Frost says the revisited Twin Peaks is, quote, not just an exercise in nostalgia, certainly not for us. It's an exercise in engaging with one of the most powerful themes in all of art, which is the ruthless passage of time. 
to engage with a set of characters after this much time has passed is a great opportunity to work with that whole set of concerns and circumstances. End quote. It taps, he says, a darker universal reality. Quote, we're all trapped in time and we're all going to die. That was... It's true. That was... That was the one sentence, we're all trapped in time, we're all going to die. I was like, all right, the return is going to, it is not going to be cherry pie and coffee at the double R the whole way through. And for that, I'm grateful. He said, I think it's going to be very interesting for audiences to confront that as well, because this is not, quote, a very special Twin Peaks Christmas. We hope it's something more than that. But, Mm -hmm. man, the Bob Orb was stupid and the sex scene was stupid and... Sex scene was stupid. The, the The real stupid thing was Diane. That was the bad thing. I could have moved past the orb. I could have been like, well, that was weird. But Diane was when you checked but out. But Diane is bad. Yeah. So, again, I, I know like two hours ago we said, like, this isn't going to be a hate fest. And hopefully it hasn't come across as that. I've been I've been worried all week about how you and I were going to cover this and, and get through it. But I'm. I'm very glad we had this two hours to talk about it and to think through the finale, the good and the bad of it. You asked earlier, like if a couple different parts had played out differently, if I would have felt differently coming out of the finale. And it's like, it's really the parts that I don't think were well executed that if they'd been executed differently, if Cooper and Diane hadn't sucked face, if, the Bob thing had played out differently if the pacing had devoted a little bit more time to the town of Twin Peaks itself before setting up this alternate, you know, parallel reality, Odessa, Carrie Page storyline. I probably would have come out of it feeling significantly more satisfied, but that's a pointless hypothetical. And I don't think that there's actually much merit in saying like, Things could have been different and I would have liked it more. I think that's like a, not a, it's a, it's a useful thing to hold TV shows up to set up and pay off. And when they fail at doing that, but you know, it's, it's less useful to be like, if I had been writing this finale, it would have played out differently. I don't know. Maybe that wasn't what you were asking then, but like the things I would be curious about if there had ever been another idea for them in the writer's room between Mark and David are the same things that I still feel like weren't executed on well. Um, and that, yeah, just the NATO Diane setup, all that stuff, but it is what it is. Um, do you, do you think like there's any one part you could maybe this, is there any one part that if you overlook it, you like the finale better? Is it just Diane? Is it just like, forget about the Diane scenes, the middle hour really just diane it's really really just diane like not liking that hour in the middle like definitely sets me up to be more critical of the way the first half hour of C- of part 17 wraps up but like i've already said like i do like the last 30 minutes of part 18 and it's it's also the fact that the the diane piece plays into the ways in which the return has done a disservice to audrey and shelly as i've been saying yeah those are our thoughts on the finale uh we are toying with after a twitter poll the 
notion of doing a commentary on the finale, which if you have not been with us in our concerns and our outlook, maybe just don't listen to that if we complete it because you're not going to find you're not going to find us being on our best behavior there. I, I don't expect if we do a commentary no. track, but some people said they would be interested to hear it. So we're thinking about doing that. And I think one way to make that extra interesting would be with the last thing I want to talk about, the very last thing I would ever want to talk about in terms of like internet theorizing about the finale, oh which boy. is the idea that you can play part 17 and part 18 together and have them come to create a different meaning, which <laughs> I'll say this. If you think that you can fucking play dark side of the moon and fucking wizard of Oz together and all that bullshit, like, no, absolutely not. There are creators who do that kind of thing. I don't think David Lynch would want you to ever actually. He would certainly never come out and say it if he did, but I don't think he would ever sit in the editing room and have two screens going at the same time and go like, this is the way to experience this thing I made. Like that's Mm -hmm. for all the ways he um, challenges conventional filmmaking. He's also just like, he's a, He's a film guy. He's like, go, well, maybe not a film guy because he doesn't do film. He does digital now. But like, he's like, go watch this in a theater. Watch it with the lights down. Watch yeah. it with the sound turned up. Watch this on a big screen. Um, not play these two at once kind of thing. But I'll say this. Someone did excerpt the ending where Sarah smashes Laura's picture in part 17 and Cooper and uh carrie page are at the palmer house in part 18 and if you watch those as though they were lined up exactly with the opening credits in full sync the effect of that is like chilling to like see them walking down the steps and cooper at that moment there is a little you can barely hear it before laura turns to the house sorry carrie turns to the house and screams you can hear just ever so faintly in part 18, you can hear the um, it is in our house now sound. So to mm-hmm. have made that realization and then to watch the two clips synced up and to literally see inside the Palmer house play out at the same time. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that's really it interesting. It does line up pretty nicely. I could believe that's synced up. I don't think the whole episodes are synced, but what we might do is a commentary yeah. track as though they were synced because that would be kind of wild. <sighs> And at the very least, then, if something bad's happening in part 17 or 18, maybe we have something good happening in the other one to focus on as we talk I about it. I don't know it. about that. No, you're not sure? I, I'm not well, sure. Well, <laughs> stay subscribed on would, iTunes would... and find out if we do it. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I think we should do the commentary. I don't know if we should do it synced, but we will... We will regret. And if we do the commentary, we're almost certainly going to have guests on for it too. It should absolutely no, be a kind of thing where if you feel comfortable having a beer and watching Twin Peaks with us talking about it and not being totally serious, that this will be for you. Yeah. No, I. Yeah. It is not going to be a two hour long podcast where we try to actually sort through our reactions and analysis because we couldn't do that while watching it. Any any last things you want to say? I feel like I've I don't know if you have anything that's settled in over the last week um, for you about the return. No, I feel the same way that I do. I think that 
I feel a little more forgiving about like Cooper trying to save Laura in recontextualizing his failure to do so as a purposeful commentary on his kind of failure to understand like what he's capable of or like what the what Laura's problem is. Do you know what I mean? I think the show is maybe a little more self-aware about why Tabula Rasa doesn't work than I had originally given it credit for when I was kind of reeling off of the the badness of Diane. Um, But again, like my gripes are just like disservices done to Shelly and Audrey fall in line with the mistreatment of this creation of this cool girl who's played by Laura Dern, which is such a waste. And uh, Cooper's urge to save Laura from herself seems to be in line with that. But at the same time, I think there is this other reading available about the show's own awareness of Cooper's shortcomings in that logic. Yeah. Um, Cooper, Cooper fucked up. Cooper fucked up big time. And I mean, season two kind of put him in the same position at the end. He entered the Black Lodge. He did not enter with full courage. He got caught by his doppelganger, taken over in the real world. Seems like seems like this is just the way Twin Peaks ends, be it season two or the return. Or if you're like me, you can always just fall back on fire walk with me is still the best part of Twin Peaks. Maybe it truly is. So this has been Twin Peaks peaks us talking about part 17 and 18. Thank you for sticking with us through this episode. And if you stuck with us through all of the return or if you stuck with us through all of the Twin Peaks we've covered, um, really thank you so, so much. Um, we are certainly not the most popular podcast, but I have enjoyed the whole journey, uh, taking it with you, Ashley, and with especially uh, long-term listeners like Scott Benson or like Cole Hamilton, who did our amazing podcast art. You should absolutely buy something from Cole. You should at least see what he's done outside of our podcast artwork and his other Twin Peaks artwork. His whole portfolio at ColeHamilton.com is fantastic that's c-o-l-l-h-a-m-i-l-t-o-n dot com you can also find him on twitter he's at c far enough and i just i'm now thinking back to like the moment we saw on twitter that he did that amazing uh portrait of dale cooper while he was listening to one of our episodes and i was just like i'm so glad that you and i ashley and you know we made this podcast and that people who are fans of twin peaks found value in what we have to say so whether or not you agree with us about the finale if you share reservations or um or actually feel weirdly as resigned as we do to the fact that like a bleak ending is fitting um maybe you were mad because you hoped that it would resolve nicely um if you stuck with us for any significant portion of time thank you from the bottom of my heart for for doing so i hope that we've um I hope that we've added to your experience of watching this show and thinking of it as more than just like serialized television to be consumed and then dropped away or serialized television to just be obsessively theorized over. It's more than that, too, to me. Um, and I think to us. Thanks, guys, for listening. We've had fun doing this, even if this last episode has been a bummer. Um, but 
we're glad that you guys like like our unique takes. I think they're, I don't know. It's cool that there are other people who appreciate um, where we're coming from. I'm sorry we didn't have food reviews during the return. Maybe that would have been a little more lighthearted. I think, I think last week's coffee review more than made up for the absence of food reviews throughout the return. I hope so. Um, but yeah, all told, like this has been really fun. Um, stay tuned. I don't know. We do other we stuff. We do other stuff. Like the- and we may, I think the plan tentatively, you know, commentary aside, whether or not that happens. Um, Mark Frost has a book out at the end of October. You know, keep, keep tuned to our fucking feeds and Twitter at Twin Peaks Peaks. Stay subscribed on iTunes. I don't know if you have an RSS reader, you can plug it into that arcane business. Um, and maybe we'll have an episode out about it. Pro- it would probably be, you know, a little ways into November. We need time to read it and digest it and whatever, but that may happen. Um, don't hold your breath for, Dale Cooper, my life, my tapes. I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> no. Uh, you know what I forgot? I forgot to mention. You can cut this out because this probably doesn't even matter. But this is literally the plot of Donnie Darko. The finale is the plot of Donnie Darko. Oh, this is not getting cut out at all. You have to. <laughs> you have to say that. <laughs> I forgot. I forgot about this. Um, have you seen Donnie Darko? Yeah, I've seen Donnie Darko. Okay. Yeah. Like. It's not it's not exactly the same. And like maybe honestly, Donnie Darko is a bit better because there's some sacrifice involved on the part of the titular character to go back in time and like write things. Um, But it's not like it's not full tabula rasa. It's like. It's this uh, this like imperfectness. It's this. Trying to work within the limitations of time as we know it and like playing with time and trying to like achieve this universal good at like the um to the detriment of oneself and like maybe that's the fundamental difference between honestly like Donnie Darko and Laura who also like as we know in Fire Walk with me like makes a sacrifice um and Dale who's not what is he really sacrificing? I know it, we know at this point he's kind of like lost in time, but like he doesn't go in to that situation being self self-sacrificing as much as he likes to kind of make himself a martyr. Yeah. Um, and can I just say, I don't even think this is the first time this has been brought up on this podcast, but um, sometimes I doubt your commitment to sparkle motion. Think about it. Maybe we've just <laughs> cracked the meaning of sparkle. Maybe the entire turn was no. I can't believe after like us saying thank you to everybody, we've decided to shove it. This is such. This is us. This is our. This is Twin Peaks Peaks. You can cut this it's out. Staying. I just, that this was going to be a throwaway, and then I had to explain it. <laughs> just, if you're still listening at this point, be glad I didn't start putting just you and I underneath that whole bit. This is how this podcast has been. The beginning, we've delivered an over two hour long episode, very typical. And um, yeah, and we we have other things going on. This is where plugs happen. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. It's at Matthew Olson. Spell it right. I have another show, which is 
coming back piece by piece. Can you get to that? I make it with my friend Caitlin Best, who I also attended college with. We play the Wikipedia game every week. It's fun. It's goofy. It's laid back. You can find that on iTunes. It's can you get to that? Or on Twitter, it's at get to that. And the website is can you get to that.simplecast.fm, much like our URL for this podcast is twinpeaksPeaks.simplecast.fm. My last plug would be for this show and say, if you have someone you're trying to get into Twin Peaks and you've gotten any value from having us as a podcast companion to it, um, we're, we're going to keep the show like online for a while. So send it, send it to people, get more people listening. Uh, it'd be really cool to see, you know, now that the return has ended, if more people come to the show, if people come out of the woodwork and listen to us as a companion, that'd be super cool. It'd be nice to have some kind of lasting influence on the conversation. Um, that's it for me. Ashley, you've got another show. And in fact, I'd say now's a perfect time if you want to plug the other shows you've had, too, that people can go back and listen to. We're just plugging the K-Hole today. Yeah, the K-Hole's coming back. We're celebrating 10 years of Keeping Up with the Kardashians, which is in its 14th season. Um Kim's got some new hair. I'm really tired of talking about that, but there's some other stuff like a forthcoming Kim Ye baby number three. Um, Chloe's probably going to marry Tristan Thompson. Scott was in a psychiatric hold. As always, there's a lot going on with that family. And if you like intrigue, if you like drama, um, if you like a touch of a dose of nihilism, a dose of the absurd, like the K-hole's your place to get that fixed. So... Look us up on iTunes, The K-Hole, a Kardashian podcast. And you can also follow me on Twitter at Ashley Brandt. All right. Um, this uh, this is like the last time we're doing this proper. It's super weird. It's been a two year plus journey to this moment. So, Ashley, you got to close out this episode. I don't know what line you're um, going to use. This has been Twin Peaks Peaks. These grapes are right on edge. <laughs>